Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hey, happy Friday, February 2nd. Uh, I hope you have some delightful plans for the weekend. Um, my plans for the weekend, I plan to stay in my pajamas. Um, pretty much, I'm going to put them on. Tonight, and I'm probably not going to take them off until Monday morning. Uh, I have no problem with that. That brings me joy. (laughs) I'll enjoy the dogs, you know. I'll send Ray out to do the things that make him happy. And I will just eat ice cream and read books, maybe watch a little junk TV. It is going to be glorious. I hope you have something equally nice planned. And if, as I say this all the time, if you are one of the people who works weekends so the rest of us can have this time, I thank you. I thank all the people who are going to be working at the hospitals and in the ERs and at the big box stores and at the grocery stores and um, at the post office and the bank at least for a little while on Saturday morning and anybody else who gives up a part or all of their weekend. Thank you for that sacrifice. So it is Friday. Paul Shavari is sitting back in the studio with his hand poised over the telephone line. And you know why, because we spend the first half of every show, every Friday, talking to you about the interesting and important events of today or the last week, whatever Whatever story you want to revisit, whether it is a news story or a political story, uh, 773-763-9278. 773-763-9278. You can call me on that line and you can text me on that line. But... um, up until uh, 3.30 today, it's just going to be you and me. By the way, at 3.30, we're going to be joined by Congressman Mike Quigley, who, as you know, uh, has been part of the Ukraine caucus. And um, find out from him if there's any light at the end of the tunnel. After that, we're going to be talking to Professor Joel Ostro again about Ukraine. I don't know if any of you subscribe to The New Yorker. And and frankly, if you don't, I don't know if this article is behind a paywall, but the February 5th edition has a really in-depth, fascinating article on what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, It's by Masha Gessen, who is the um, (laughs) expert on the Soviet Union, former um, Russian resident Masha Gessen, thorn in Putin's side, Masha Gessen. See, you, if you watch the cable news shows, particularly MSNBC, you'll see her, um, or I believe she goes by they. they uh, you'll see them uh, from time to time. Um, but just incredible insights into what's going on in Ukraine. And there's um, some of what's in that article. I want to ask, uh, get Joel Ostro's take on it. So we've got that for the last half of the um, show today. And the uh, first half of the show today, we are going to be... Reading texts and taking calls, and I'm going to share with you some stuff from earlier in the week. And um, 
And we've got a lot to talk about. Let's get to it. Let's go to the phone lines. Jim's calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, how are you? How are you, Joan? Yesterday, I took Pat Luck at the library, get a couple of books, and I ended up in a Trump section, and all the all the volumes on Trump put me in such a foul mood that I, I, I dressed right to the COVID uh, <laughs> ordeal, and, and I thought of uh, Bob Woodward and Trump discussing COVID. Trump was tweeting two or three times a day, but never tweets anything about COVID. And then his performances at TV, they got worse and worse and worse until they put the Hoosier Thunderbolt in to explain to the American public what he thought of uh, COVID. But not before Trump did his final performance. Bleach and light bulbs. Now, if that doesn't go down in presidential quotes, uh, yeah. And years. let's not forget the ivermectin, the um, the horse medicine. Right, that he was yeah, pushing. yeah, that he was pushing. He was pushing. And, mm-hmm. and just think of the nerve. And, and the Republican channels are is so behind them. You know, they failed. They you know, they won't criticize them for loving their money, which is really strange because even yeah. the Democratic states will, will, will criticize uh, Biden. At certain points, you know, we're quick to criticize, but the Republicans, they won't criticize this man, regardless of what he does or how crazy he acts or how bizarre he is. But if uh, I mean, think about it, Joe, what if you what if, if you knew that we were COVID was on the horizon, you would at least call a friend or somebody and say, you know, by the way. No, uh, let me tell you, this could be bad. You better stay in, Doris. Mm-hmm. But not, but not Trump. Not Trump. He, uh, he probably. I don't. I can't get sign a motive to his thinking. I mean, anybody that'll be. Well, one thing I, I, I've, in looking back on how he handled COVID, one thing occurs to me with Donald Trump, because he never wants to appear to be wrong. Because in his mind, being if you're wrong, that makes you a loser. So whenever anything happens and he takes a position, he can never move off of that position, even if new information comes to light, because he doesn't want to look like he made a mistake. He can't he cannot deal with that. And and when covid first came, the position he took publicly was it's not going to be a big deal. And once he said that he had he spent the rest of his presidency trying to justify that he said that if somebody had just come to him and somebody and and said to him, you know, Mr. President, this is going to be like the Spanish flu of um, 1917, 1918. He said thousands of people are going to die around the world. You know, you need to you need to take the lead here and get out and sound the alarm and, and you'll be praised forever as an insightful leader. And if he had taken that position first off, he would have stuck by that and he would have been a whole different covid president. But he didn't get good advice or perhaps any advice, and somehow he saw COVID as reflecting badly on him and his presidency, so he had to minimize it. And once he minimized it, he could not publicly move off of that position. Even as you say, when he did that interview, this was in February, early, early months for COVID, and he told Bob... This is really serious. This is a lot worse than anybody knows. But did he say that to the American people? He said the opposite. And he said it all the time. 
And the Republican Party picked that mantle up. That was that's the really the crazy. Yeah. We're so partisan. We're so partisan. The Republican Party is still. Yeah, I'm making excuses for COVID. And here's the uh, thing, DeSantis. Yeah, yeah. Ahead, uh, if Joe. if they would just, there's safety in numbers. You know, when Liz Cheney stood up to him, when Adam Kinzinger stood up to him, even you know behind the scenes, Mitch McConnell was bad mouthing him. If if they had gotten together as a group and said, you know, this man was a bad president. He's a bad human being, and we are going in a different direction. If they had done it together, they would have, because I think they were all afraid of losing their jobs. They care about getting reelected more than they care about truth, more than they care about what's right. I can't tell you, when I first started doing this show, and um, in, a, in another week or two, I'm going to be starting my sixth year, but I remember when I first started doing this show, I would interview Republicans and they would say all this stuff. And then as soon as the show was over, they would basically tell me what they really thought, which was totally different than what they said on the air. And I stopped inviting those people on because I wasn't going to I wasn't going to allow them to promote that kind of that kind of untruth that, you know, I wasn't going to be a party of their efforts to save their butts. I agree, Joe. I mean, if you can't own up to what you really think in your own mind, then what is the point of you running for office? At some point, mm-hmm. you've, you've got to show your cards. Anyway, Joan, I went on long enough. You had a lot of great calls, and you have, and you have a great weekend, Joan. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. You have a great weekend, too. Um, why don't we um, take a break, and uh, we have more callers and um, more to talk about when we come right back after this. Tune in to Driving... Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Um, I want to share a text with you. You know, uh, earlier this week, uh, I think it was Wednesday, I talked to Michael Kirk, who is a documentary filmmaker, and he did a documentary called Democracy on Trial. It aired on uh, TTW, uh, but you can see it on YouTube or you can go to PBS.org. And uh, one of our um, texters saw it, watched it, and um, said that they saw the whole thing and that it was awesome, that it's all about Trump and the 2020 election and what happened on January 6th. and uh, so it's nice. We got a review. We got a review from one of our uh, listeners that um, they watched that documentary, and it was every bit as good as um, we we talked about it being here on the radio. Uh, let's go back to the uh, phone lines now. Okay, Paul, I lost. Hang on a second. Okay, Bobby's calling in from Indiana. Hey, Bobby, how are you? Well, Bobby? it's been a rough. It has it? it? It's been a rough week here. That's all I can say about that. Uh, Aww. I can, I can tell you one thing. John Stossel is full of crap. Reed is not, I repeat, not good. Yeah. And uh, I will, I'll leave that at that. But well, you I know, I can remember when John Stossel first started his career, he was like a consumer reporter. You know, he would go after scams and people doing uh, right. bad things. But I don't know what happened to him. 
but he turned into this anti-government nut job. Um, yeah. He he used to be so well respected. He used to do great work. And, you know, it's, you know, like I talk about people, were they always crazy or did they get crazy when they got older? It seems with John Stossel, unless he was hiding the crazy pretty well when he was younger, he's one of those people that just the older he gets, the crazier he gets. The stuff that comes out of his mouth is unbelievable. Quite a few years ago, he came to Michigan City with his Grievous Good Tour, and I couldn't believe it. I sent an editorial to the local newspaper, and they printed it word for word. <laughs> but then that was then, and this is now. But I got a few things here. I got to let off some steam after this week, and you're probably going to cut my mic for good after this, but by <laughs> God. It, it, it's got to get out there, I think, at least. I'm going to let it off, so here we go. Okay. Um, you ready? Ready. Okay. Lauren Boebert. Now, she's still in the news, and, um, you know, she had that little uh, little ta there at the movie theater. And You, know, you mean when, when she was... Um when she was fondly touching her date yeah, and her date was yeah, intimately yeah, touching yeah, her? Yeah, 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 yeah. So my suggestion is, like, uh, you know, with most politicians, you would say, Lauren Boebert, Republican Colorado. I say that we scrap that, and now whenever you use her name, you just say, Lauren Boebert, junk dealer. Colorado. Mm-hmm. And I, I think most people will be able to figure that out. Uh, another thing is this Josh Holly. I think he was from uh, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Kansas, and, yeah, Kansas City. Yeah, so, somewhere out there. And, uh, you know, he gave the, uh, the fist bump to the uh, Jam Sixers and everything. Uh, so he, he's another winner, but if you notice that guy, he looks goofier than I do. Uh, <laughs> you know, in, in, in profile, you know, in cameo, he looks relatively normal. But if, as he turns and comes full face, his head virtually disappears. It's like a pencil. He's got kind of a parabolic head like the old, uh, <laughs> this Union Traction uh uh, in an urban car they were experimenting with in 1904. And uh, it, it, it's just real thin, long and thin, and with his eyes are on the side like a deer or an antelope, <laughs> and, uh, which, is, which was how he ran, if you recall, during that. And, oh, uh, not anywhere near as graceful as a deer. <laughs> no, but, but he, he ran like a cartoon. Yeah, he did kind of bound like one, uh, kicking himself in the ass with his own hooves as he went. Uh, so that, that's another case in point. <laughs> Finally, uh, speaking of cases, the, uh, the E. Jean Carroll case, the settlement mm-hmm. and all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, she said something, and I've been saying this for a long time, and I think everybody should remember it. And take it to heart, because she summed it up perfectly. Trump 
is nothing. And that's exactly it. He's, he's, he doesn't even make up the sum of his, uh, his uh, out-of-shape yellow parts. The guy is a nothing when it comes right down to it. Yeah, he's we kind have, of an empty suit. I, yeah, and they're not a very nice one at that. But um, I uh, would put him in a class. That's unfortunately, they tore the old place down. But in Michigan City, um, when I was in high school in the late sixties, we for lunch we'd go down to the uh, to the railroad station, the old interurban station, South Shore Line, goes between South Bend and downtown Chicago. Still does. Mm-hmm. Last of the electric interurbans left in the country. But we'd go down there and get a snack or something. Well, they had these old derelict guys that would get odd jobs there at the station like uh, Happy and you know, Popcorn and guys like that. They, you know, they just hung around there and could get whatever they could get. And that's what Trump, to me, if he didn't have the so-called money, he would, be, he would fit in perfectly as a station bum. He would be, he would be grumpy. <laughs> the station bum you'd call grumpy because that's the, it's a, it'd be a perfect place for him. If you don't want to put him in jail, Find a railroad station, an old dilapidated railroad station. <laughs> be fine. So, uh, <sighs> so now if you want to, if you want to cut my mic, go right ahead, dear. I don't blame you. Um, Bobby, I would never, ever cut your mic. I would never, ever um, not take your calls. I love hearing from you. And you, you, I, you're our Indiana correspondent. Did you forget that? You know, we, you're the only Indiana correspondent we've got. We expect you to bring us all the news from your state all the time. That's not good news. (laughs) (laughs) I feel, I feel bad that you can't find somebody better. My God, you've got to be, even even in this lousy state, there's got to be somebody better than me. (laughs) Well, until until we find them, until we've got to beat the bushes and find that sucker, because he's got to be out here. Good God Almighty. Oh, boy. Well, well, you have a good uh, day and good weekend and good night and all of that good stuff. You too, Bobby. Take care of yourself. We need you. So, you know, find something fun to do or just, you know, this weekend, just put your feet up and do nothing. Because that's, I think, what I'm going to do. But, you know, there's nothing well, wrong with that. A, why don't you have a, a Willer uh, take you and Ray out and you can roam around this way? You know, that nice big uh, 34 Rio self-shifter that you gave him now. That dog can drive now. So, uh, well, I'll think about it. I'll think about think it. Think about it anyway. Think about it. And thanks thanks for the call, Bobby. Always appreciate hearing from you, okay? All righty. Let's see. I'm trying to read through the um, text. Um, no, um, we don't have enough time. I'm going to hold uh, the callers, Paul, till uh, till we come back after the next break. I was trying to read through the text. And, you know, I'm always curious. There are a few people. They don't call, but clearly they listen. 
um, who clearly don't like anything, not not just about me, but they don't like anything about this station. I get a lot of texts. Well, not a lot. Uh, there are a few people who text a lot and um, just are keep trying to plug away with all these pro-Trump messages. And I'm really, you know, I'm kind of befuddled by that. Uh, I don't understand uh, if it's maybe they're just contrarian and they think that, you know, if I read these things, it's going to get under my skin. <laughs> Clearly, if you think that, you don't realize what it takes to get under my skin with uh, being on television for 20 years before I came to radio. Well, I started my career in radio and then went to television and now I'm back in radio. But um my skin is so thick, it's like my body is like one big callus, okay? So, you know, write to me all the pro-Trump stuff you want, and I hope it makes you happy. Let's take a break. There's going to be more calls and more stuff to talk about after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Friday, and you know we spend the first half of Friday. I'm sharing with you um, some of the news stories I didn't uh, get to, some of the sound clips I didn't get to earlier in the week, and uh, take your calls. Let's get I, – I do have some stuff that I want to talk to you about the coming year, but let's go back to the phone lines first. As uh, Paul uh, told me, George is on the line. He's calling in from the south side. Hey, George, how are you today? Just fine, Joan. How are you doing? Peachy, peachy, I tell you. <laughs> oh, that uh, makes uh, <laughs> fills me with anticipation because I just went grocery shopping and I've got some peach ice cream in the freezer. Oh, oh, that so, sounds so good. It is. Um, actually, it's called peach cobbler ice cream, which is even better. Yeah. But, uh, you're but lucky you're still young enough to eat that. Man, you get older, you get... You know, gluten intolerant, you get lactose intolerant, which doesn't mean that I still don't eat ice cream, but I just know going in, I'm going to pay a price. Well, thank you. And thank you for thinking that I'm not old. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, you're as young as springtime, Joan. Oh, younger than springtime. But, you know, springtime's been around for thousands of years, so that's not saying much. All right. I try to pay you a nice compliment. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sometimes it's hard to just be gracious and say thank you. Thank you, George. That's very sweet of you. Um, you're very welcome. And after all, I am a sweet guy. You are. Anyway, but what I'm calling about ain't so sweet. First thing, um, I am hope I'm getting this right, but in regards to Trump and COVID, Tom Hartman's talked about this a bunch of times. Apparently, in the very beginning, the initial response was going to be a responsible one. But then apparently Jared and I think Trump Jr. figured out that at that point, the uh, largest incidence of COVID was in blue cities and blue states. So they made a decision to uh, not go after it with all the resources the nation has because they thought it would help them electorally. And I guess there is more than a bit of evidence to bear this out. So, you know, he's he's a killer and a murderer in addition to being a rapist and a misogynist. Hmm. Um, But it's blown up in his face because over time, the incidence of sickness and death from COVID uh, has 
much more pronounced in the red states because they don't get vaccinated thanks to what Big Daddy told them, even though he did get vaccinated and had the best medical care when he got sick. But that's another yeah. matter. And, um, and apparently, as, as we knew it would come out sooner or later, apparently he was at death's door, despite the photo ops and despite him walking to Marine One on the way to the hospital. Um, people were very, very worried that COVID was going to kill Donald Trump. Yeah, I guess, among other things, is um Oxygen reading was down like around 90% or even Mm -hmm. a little lower, which is perilous. And of course, it it has an app, this situation has an application to today because, well, the current defense secretary erred in not reporting his prostate cancer condition to the, to the president and the chain of command. Uh, Trump was the commander in chief and he hid his condition, and apparently there was no transfer of presidential powers to the vice president while he was in the hospital. Of course not. So that's a, that's a hundred thousand times worse. Yeah. But um, anyway, what the main thing I called about is this: um, in the past week, we've had five Chicago high school students shot right outside their schools. Three of them dead, and. I just find it more than a bit objectionable that Mayor Johnson, who I supported during the mayoral campaign, so I'm saying this reluctantly, that Mayor Johnson and half the council uh, spent a lot of time this week on putting together what I regarded uh, at the very least as an unproductive resolution on what's happening in in Gaza. Um yeah, it's not just it's not just students getting shot outside their school. It's two being murdered in the middle of downtown Chicago in the loop. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 we are uh, based on what I've read recently, even though the incidences of violent crime are down over what they were last year and the year before, they're still substantially higher than pre-COVID. And we are, if not the worst, we're I think in the top three in terms of armed street robberies, and carjackings. A lot of people are dying or being brutalized in Chicago by thugs with guns, and the mayor and the city council spend, I don't know, was it like two days' worth of uh, governmental time debating a a measure about Gaza? I just think that that the sense of priorities is totally misaligned. And, you know, I'm not saying, and I've I've said this before, everybody's got uh, the right to express their opinion Um, But for the Chicago City Council to waste so much time on a resolution, which, by the way, as Governor Pritzker pointed out, the resolution barely passed. It was the the votes were split 50 50 and Brandon Johnson had to break the tie. And Governor Pritzker was like, A, the City Council of Chicago has no power to do anything about anything in Gaza. And B, even if they were trying to send a message a 50-50 vote doesn't send the message that this is how we feel. It sends the message that we don't know how we feel. So what a waste of time when there are, when there are local issues that really need time and work. I agree with you, George. Well, I guess this is we've we've learned that this is real life. It doesn't always um 
rise to to the heights of exceptional performance. There's disappointments and and uh, mistakes, but just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and moving along. Yeah. Yeah, well, what choice do we have? Is there another option? <laughs> nope. Yeah. I agree. Just have to keep stumbling and bumbling. That's yeah. all. Yeah. But, you know, keep stumbling and bumbling forward. But at the same time, pay, make sure you pay attention to what's important and don't lose sight of what's important because you want to, you know, you want to feel like you're doing something that's going to have some international consequences somehow. I mean, that's whether I think this res, these resolutions came from a good place, but it sure seemed like they were wrapped up in a lot of ego. Yeah. And, um, I hate to sound like, a. A right-wing Republican, but it <laughs> was a big manifestation of what I think drags the Democratic Party down too many times: identity politics. You know, yeah. Yep. What does this have to do with uh, whether or not you can join a union, or conditions in the workplace, or are, are your kids safe in school, and are they getting a good education, and is there enough food, clothing, and shelter for everybody? Uh, is the public transportation system working or or isn't it mm-hmm. you know and by the way the chicago park district still owes over 600 million dollars on the bonds for rebuilding soldier field for the bears uh who may move anyway so i mean it, it seems like what's going on in gaza is uh, shouldn't even be under the microscope yeah i i agree and i think it's a shame that the only resolution that they could bring to the floor to vote on didn't even have the support of the only Jewish alder in the entire city council. You know, um, anyway, I agree with you, George. What a waste of time and and what did it accomplish? I think it accomplished a big bunch of nothing. But uh, thanks. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Always like it when you uh, weigh in here um, before Thank you, John. Yeah, you're very welcome. Um I want to, one thing that I wanted to accomplish today is, you know, we are in 2024, something like 270 some days till the big presidential election. We are, as time goes on, going to be interviewing like more and more candidates, uh, going to be talking about whether it is local, state or national, the issues that people are facing and voting on. Uh, I want to give you kind of a, a rough outline of what I look for in a guest, but I also want you to know, because there's a, a gentleman, Mark, who I have been texting back and forth with, and, you know, he has um, requested that I have um, some of the older people on that I've never had on before. And I will tell you, Mark, sometimes it's really hard to get older people, <laughs> and even when you've got them on the schedule... Anything comes up, they cancel at the last minute. So it's not that uh, we haven't made the effort. It's they are sometimes very slippery uh, people um, to to get on the schedule and keep there. But what I look for in a guest, aside from somebody who has an interesting point of view or an interesting experience or is working on some legislation, um, 
that's great, and that's a starting point, but they have to be able to join me on the radio. They have to be honest. They have to be clear in their speech. They have to have a point of view. I only want people who have an appreciation for democracy. I want people who can express themselves. And why do I say those things? Uh, because sometimes even the most well-meaning of legislators or politicians, they don't know how to, I don't know whether I want to call it talking from the heart, but I've had people on before who only wanted to talk in platitudes or campaign speeches, campaign bullet points. You know, this, um, you know, well, I want us all to come together. Well, that's great. Uh, how are you going to bring that about? Well, you know, we're going to be talking to people. What are you going to be talking to people about? How are you going to get their input? Once you talk to people and get that input, how are you going to translate that into action? You know, I, I, there have been times when I've had people on who I know have done some good work, but they seem unable to really talk about it. And unable to get beyond political speak. Political speak bores the heck out of me. I'm not here so that you can repeat your campaign talking points. If you can't tell me what's behind that and speak to me as one person to another, I've had people who've texted in and asked me why a lot of times um, like like when it comes to the city council, one of the council people I have on, um, maybe once a month usually, is Raymond Lopez. Now, I know he is very conservative, but he is also very honest and blunt. We, you might not agree with what he says, but you know he's being honest, and he's telling you exactly what he sees and what he wants to do. And if there's pushback, so be it. He'll deal with it. Um, that's the kind of conversation I like. And also, too, one thing I'd like you to remember. Yes, we are WCPT and facts matter. And we are a democratic station. But Demo Democrats, the Democratic Party is a much bigger tent. We have all kinds of folks in the Democratic Party, some of them very progressive, some of them very middle of the road, some of them more on the conservative side. And that's okay. We can talk to those people. And I'm frankly not afraid to talk to Republicans. Um, we've been reaching out to Jim Durkin, we've been trying to get him on, because I've read about Jim Durkin and I want to talk to him about the future of the Republican Party. And he isn't somebody who is going to come on the radio and say things just because he knows Donald Trump or the MAGAs want him to say those things, regardless of how he really feels. I want to know how you really feel. And if that creates some pushback for you, I expect you to be able to deal with that. I'm not even a politician. I get pushback. And, and and I can deal with it. The only thing I can't deal with is when sometimes we get callers and, um, and people want to say things that aren't true. 
Now, I have found that if somebody says something that's not true, and I say, you know, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, and then correct the record, and we can go from there. But if it's somebody who really just wants to push MAGA talking points, have you noticed on those occasions when uh, they get on the air, they try to talk over me because they don't want me to say, wait, that's not right, that's not true, you know, let's go back to that point. They want to just keep uh, talking, and generally they keep talking a little more loudly in an effort to um, run over any objections I'm making to what they're saying. And that's not a discussion. And I don't need that. If somebody believes in certain Republican talking points and wants to have a discussion and wants to try to explain to me um, why they feel how they feel, I'm up for that. But you're not going to use this program uh, to spread lies, misinformation, or even worse, disinformation. Ain't going to happen. I'm not going to smile and nod. But I do want to have a diversity of guests, and I do want people who are honest. Okay? And, you know, you guys know our number, 773-763-9278. Anytime there's somebody you, you would like me to have on, shoot me a text. You know, even if I don't make a big deal about reading texts on a daily basis, every time I do the show, I try to check the text line. You know, I've got a lot of moving parts here, <laughs> back here at my little home studio, so I'm not always a, as on top of the text line as I would like to be, but I do try to um, give it a look at once or twice every show. And if there's somebody you think would make a great guest, um, tell me who they are. Tell me why. You think they would make a great guest. And I'm open to that. Um, And as long as we can have an honest, heartfelt, truthful conversation, you can disagree with me. Oh, yes, you can. (laughs) Um, It doesn't mean I'm... not going to push back because I am a... I am a woman of strong opinions myself. But I... As, as we become more and more and more steeped in um, politics, in candidates, in incumbents, uh, as we approach the 2024 presidential election, just keep this in mind, okay? And if you are frustrated with a guest, um, you're welcome at any point. I don't always announce that the phone lines are open, but we really do have the, the listener lines open. Once in a great while, not very often, once in a great while, I'll have a guest who doesn't want to take calls, but that's pretty rare. That's pretty rare. And and sometimes I don't take calls because my guest is so interesting and has so much information to share that I don't want to get distracted from the points we're making. So there is that. But I'm going to have guests on from time to time who do not necessarily uh, identify as progressive. And I still think that there's an interesting discussion to be had with those people. 
wear a big tent. We try to be accepting as long as you're willing to be a Democrat and to support Democratic candidates and to support democracy. Then then you're going to be part of the club. Okay. I'm going on the record here. So. Thank you for that. And um, for those of you who want to um, write in or text in and say, you know, I hated that guest. Why do you have that person on? That's why. Because I want to have all kinds of conversations. And some Democrats are more conservative than than I am. Some Democrats are more progressive than I am. And that's okay. We all believe in democracy. We all want Democratic candidates to either stay in office or get elected to office I've said this before, if in 2024, if we could have a Democratic Senate, a Democratic House of Representatives, and a Democrat in the White House, think of what we could get done. Actual, meaningful border reform. Support for our allies. We could make Putin regret the day he invaded Ukraine. We could maybe um, repeal some of the taxes that the billionaires have been enjoying. I am. Um, we are getting um, into a situation, and I think Joe Biden, by supporting unions, is doing his best to counter this. You know, blue collar Biden. Um, when we have a lot of people in union jobs, we have a solid middle class. Did you see how in Sweden, union workers at the docks don't want to unload Teslas because Elon Musk is so anti-union? Sweden is a, almost everybody who works in Sweden works at a unionized job. It is the way to have a solid middle class. And when you have a solid middle class, you have a stable country. Wealth inequality is that's where the seeds for unrest come from. And I was, you know, I subscribed to the Wall Street Journal. And today, once a week, they do this segment called Mansion. And I saw a headline that was something along the lines of, oh, is $100 million to buy a property the new normal? And I'm thinking, this is a problem. This should not be the new normal. And if there are enough people buying $100 million properties that they're writing about this kind of thing, something's askew. Something is off. Okay, I am getting off of my soapbox now, and I am going back to the phone lines where Roosevelt has been patiently waiting for me to be quiet. Hello, Roosevelt. How are you today? How are you doing, Joan? Thank you for taking my call. Uh, have a nice weekend. You too. Yourself with your with your comfy pajamas. Yes. Um. Did you see the look on Trump's face when that reporter asked him, "Are you going to be using funds?" Uh, the, the, the yeah, are you going to be using campaign money to pay off some of these uh, judgments? And it yeah. was like he didn't understand the question. He, I think yeah, he was having I, one of his confused moments because he first yeah. he looked at her and he was like, what? And she had to repeat the question. Are you going to use campaign money to pay off some of these judgments? And he was like, I didn't do anything wrong. And that was his answer. 
and that same look was a look that he had when he was in court one of the times. I mean, there's been so many times. The, the same look, the, the look of bewilderment, the uh, bewildered uh, look like a deer in headlights. Uh, and it's, I, you know, in my opinion, He's got there's something wrong with him mentally and physically, but there's no way of knowing. But mentally, more than 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 anything else, you know, he he's at the point, in my opinion, where he has to process everything, you know. And he's the one that notice another thing. I know I'm jumping all over. Notice another thing. Everything he projects about Biden. He's the one that's, that's, that's having a, that's why Biden, uh, you know, embraced the fact that he's got dementia or, or Alzheimer's or whatever. And, and you know, and that's, that's just it. I, I don't think he's going to be the candidate. As I still say that because eventually they cannot hide it over there in Fox News. And you see that what they went through, all of them, to make it a point that, uh, no, he's fine. He's cognizant. And he's, uh, you know, and that's that's one thing that Biden should do. He should challenge him to a mental contest, a cognitive test, <laughs> cognitive test, and a physical test. Show me yours, I'll show you mine. Sort of like a, a game, because it's basically a kid. You know, show me. Show me. Do you, you know? think, do you think he'll uh, agree to debate Biden? I don't think oh, he will. Heck no. Mm-mm. Heck no. He can't even read the teleprompter. Mm-hmm. Heck no. He, he's having a lot of difficulties mentally. And then here's another thing, too. He never is able to pronounce words in last names like Stefanik when he mispronounced yeah. Stefanik. Yeah. And, 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 and even when he, like I said, and even when he reads off the teleprompter, you know, um, he makes mistakes. And, you know, it was interesting that, that Nikki Haley said something about that, you know, that he's not the same man he was in 2016. And another gentleman, a Republican, uh, uh, said the same thing that, you know, in, in, in Nikki Haley's uh, interview, they said uh, she said that uh, he's not the same guy, you know, mentally. So I think I don't think he's going to be the candidate. It's just my opinion. It's too many. Here's the thing, Joan. Karma and there's too many things that, that that could go wrong. I mean, the civil suits, and I believe that the policemen, the Capitol Police, um, are going to be able to sue him in the civil court. Well, that's coming up the the pipeline, you know, and all these other lawsuits. Because what happened with Eugene um, Carroll? That opened up the gates. People are going to think, hey, wait a minute, if she can make that much money, I can make <laughs> as much money as I as, as she can. So that's just my opinion. I mean, I don't think, uh, well, don't think he's going to make know, it. Well, you know, it would be nice if you were uh, right about that. I, I would love that, but um, <sighs> I don't know. I want him in. I want him in because if it's Nikki Haley, there's, there's more things, in my opinion, that could go wrong if Nikki Haley, or if he, even if DeSantis, as, as blank of a page he is, he doesn't have any charisma, any nothing. But, you know, but the thing that they got going for him is they're younger than, than Biden. And we know how the United States is. And when it comes down to looking and per, per, um, perception, so... People are, you know, they're ready to toss out the old guys and the old uh, women. And um, to your point, uh, 
you hear what Elizabeth Warren said? No. We got to win not only the White House, the Senate, and the uh, House. Yeah. So. Well, I think I think our my f- personal feeling is long as there are no third party candidates that's that screw up the electoral votes, I think we can keep the White House. Um, I think that we can take back the House of Representatives. It's going to be a little bit harder and more work in the Senate uh, just because of who is up for reelection in the Senate. But I, I have faith that we can hang on to however small a majority is necessary to get things done in the Senate. I really think it is possible that after the 2024 election, we could have the votes on Capitol Hill that we need to really, really get things done and really make people's lives better. I really, truly believe that, Roosevelt. Hey, one more thing, Joan. Briefly. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain that further as far as what Biden did when it came down to sending uh, Greece, uh, then Greece sent uh, help to, I mean, uh, uh, to uh, Ukraine? Can you explain that? Know what I'm talking about? Um, Greece? No, I'm not. I'm. I'm not following you. Okay, from what I understand, I, I didn't read it all, but from what I understand is he sent weapons. He managed to send weapons because these guys are refusing to send anything to Ukraine. So he sends uh, weapons to Greece, and then Greece, I could be wrong, send them to Ukraine. Hmm. I haven't. I haven't read anything about that. I do know that. Because um, things are chaotic in the government right now when it comes to supporting Ukraine with actual money and material, that the European Union is trying to make up for that gap by increasing their donations and the material and um, money that they are contributing to the cause. But I'm not familiar with anybody using Greece as a as a go, as a workaround. Where did you read that? Do you remember? I don't remember. It was yesterday, I believe, or this morning. I don't remember. From what I understand, he managed to, you know, because of his experience, he, there was something that, you know, that he could do as a president, as a leader of the United States, that he could do that. I don't know how, but he went around the the, the house to send some help right now because they need it over there in Ukraine. So. That's what I. That's what I, I read. But I, like I said, I don't remember the details. Okay. Just was in a hurry. It was. Well, we'll take a. Up. We'll keep a look out for that. Um, thanks for the call, Roosevelt. Um, we're going to break you. for Thank news. You, Have a nice weekend. Uh, you too. And we are going to go back to the phone lines and share some, um, all kinds of stuff. Maybe some Taylor Swift stuff when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. It is Friday, and every Friday we spend uh, at least the first half of the show taking your calls, talking about the news of the day that you want to talk about. Um, also trying to keep up with the text line, though uh, <laughs> there's a lot. Um, there's also a lot of people on the phone line. So let's just get right to it. Ron is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Ron. Thanks for joining us today. Yes, I have a wisecrack about House Speaker Mike Johnson. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, Speaker Johnson, he will not do anything about the uh, border crisis until 
until he sees white smoke coming from the chimney at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> <laughs> or the yes. Yeah. Well, you know, um, that I wish that were um, funnier because I think that what you're saying is exactly right. I think that um, Mike Johnson, I think that uh, even though there's no love lost, Mitch McConnell, I think that at this point in time when it's become readily apparent that Donald Trump's going to be the nominee, they're going to start taking their marching orders from him. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and uh, Mayor Johnson, he's very excited about the uh, building a sports stadium downtown for the White Sox. And the White Sox have this uh, exploring scoreboard. And uh, can you imagine at 10 or 11 o'clock at night there are the explosions in the downtown area? Yeah. The, uh, the $500 a night hotel guests when I'm like this. Yeah, and that's, you know, if indeed the White Sox do take over the 78, that nice, huge, undeveloped stretch of land along the Chicago River, um, it's going to, I mean, by the time everything goes through with the various permits and bureaucracy and built, I mean, don't you think that we're looking at maybe, maybe eh, ten years from now. Maybe, maybe, and also there, and also White Sox play uh, eighty-one home games, so it means eighty-one days a year there's going to be gridlock downtown. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, that's one of the things. As as I was, I used to talk to the state rep who um, represented Arlington Heights on a regular basis, and I used to say to him, look, if the Bears move to Arlington Heights, you better build a special road for to handle the traffic from the downtown area to Arlington Heights because of the Edens, that's already, it's already too crowded, okay? They can't use the Edens. We're going to ban them from the Edens. They're going to have to take a special Bears road that we're going to build. Yeah, I mean, it's something to consider, especially the White Sox. I mean, I assume any stadium they build will be as big as the one they've got now, and the one they've got now is huge. Right. Yeah. So. All, right. All right, thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Um, returning to Chicago, Danny is on the phone line. Hey, Danny, thanks for calling in today. Okay, let's go to Eduardo, who's calling in from Tampa, Florida. Hey, Eduardo, how are you? Yeah, John, I, I just wanted a second, I think, on uh, what George was coming about the uh, resolution, because uh, I still read the neighborhood blog, and there were a couple people there that had the same feelings as George did. So he wasn't the only one doing that. And you, of course. Uh, what neighborhood blog was it in? That was in the uh, southwest side, like uh-huh. near Midway Airport, because I used to live near Midway Airport. So I was, I was, like, checking out what's going on over there. Because mm-hmm. uh, my brother's still there. I actually took him to the airport today, and uh, he was visiting uh, over here uh, for a couple of months. So he's already back in Chicago today. Well, how nice to visit somebody in Florida for a couple of months. <laughs> yeah. So I told him next time maybe you'll come down for Thanksgiving because he came, like, uh, early December this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, thanks. Thanks for keeping us surprised of, um, do, do you get the sense, you know, Eduardo in Florida, I don't know uh-huh. how many people you talk to or how involved you are in local or state politics, but I, just I keeping keep, an yeah, eye on your legislature, and, it kind of seems uh-huh. to me that now that 
Ron DeSantis has kind of imploded as a candidate and Ron DeSantis is term limited out for governor. It kind of seems to me that he isn't as in control of the Florida legislature and Florida politics as he was uh, pretty recently. Do you have any sense of that? Yeah, and I've been watching because, you know, you guys have Chicago tonight. Mm-hmm. And we have something called uh, that comes on over here. I don't know if it comes in the rest of Florida, but it's called Florida Week. And they have uh, panelists, mm-hmm. uh, a couple left, a couple right. And that's what they were talking about. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, so I don't think he's going to be – I mean, it shows the way he uh, campaigned in the presidential. So, And uh, the only thing that came out uh, was the Disney thing. But other than that – uh, he's really not doing anything. Uh, he's trying to get uh, extra people to the border, but uh, there's really nothing. You should really be on top of this home insurance thing. And um, yeah, I know there's huge problems with insurance in Florida. Are you reading yeah. anything? Because uh, up here we've been seeing articles about the fact that maybe the next politician in the family will be Casey DeSantis, his wife. Are you getting any sense of that? No, I haven't heard anything like that. The only two people that I heard regarding that are Matt Gates and yeah. Adrian Gillum, who he defeated before. Those mm-hmm. are the only two names that I came up. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if, um, oh, Rick Scott. I don't know if he's going to get in there again. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so we'll we see. expect you to keep an eye on uh, Florida politics and oh, report yeah. back, Eduardo. Yeah, I like to keep tabs on everybody and see what's going on and see what's trending and surprises that maybe you don't hear on the news. So I'll definitely keep you guys, uh, let you know what's, uh, what's happening here. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I thank okay, you Joan, for the... Have a good week. Weekend. You too. Yeah. Thanks, for the, thanks for the call. Um, we're going to take one more call and then I'm going to uh, regale you with Taylor Swift stories. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Paul is calling in from Seattle. Hey, Paul, how are you? So, hi, Joan. Happy Friday. Did you know that this is uh, the first uh, of Donald, uh, national Donald Trump is a nothing guy? Uh, I did not know that. I, you got to do that in your Johnny Carson. I did not know that. (laughs) Ed, Ed, did you know that? Yes, yes. We're dating ourselves, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been dating myself for years. That's the only way I'm date I can get. Um, (laughs) well, it's, yeah. Today, the, uh, all federal buildings uh, dropped their their flags for one minute uh, in commemoration of, of Donald Trump's uh, uh, time with Stormy Daniels, and then they were re raised to their full uh, staff uh, pride and glory. Uh, and this is this. It will be uh, every day. Is basically Donald Trump is a nothing day uh, through November fifth. Uh, President Biden declared that. Well, he didn't officially declare it. He what he said was. Lots of people are saying, lots of people are saying that Donald Trump is a nothing and uh, it should be Donald, every day should be Donald Trump is a nothing day. <laughs> no, hmm. Seriously, though, folks. Uh, you know what? I agree with Roosevelt that um, Roosevelt was saying that he should challenge, uh, President Biden should challenge Trump to a mental contest. I've been saying for a long time that he should challenge Donald Trump, if nothing else, just to like a walking contest. How about this? Let's see who can walk. All 18 holes from start to uh, of one of Donald Trump's golf courses from start to finish. Just walk. You don't have to play golf. You just have to walk them. And, I, and uh, 18 holes is about, 
oh, I don't know, probably about two and a half, two and three quarter miles, depending on the course. So anybody should be able to walk that um, in about 40 minutes. I mean, my 93-year-old dad, before he died of COVID the, last couple, the year before last, my dad could walk three miles in 45 minutes. He was 93. So you ought to be able to walk the golf course. And I'll tell you what, Donald, uh, uh, President Biden three times a week does a 45-minute uh, spin class followed by a 45-minute Pilates class. And Donald <laughs> Trump, I don't, I don't think Donald Trump could actually walk 18 holes of his own golf course because he always is in the cart. Mm-hmm. And I think President Biden should just taunt him and taunt him and taunt him because he is, you know, Muhammad Ali used to taunt, you know, taunt all his opponents. And uh, I, I think Donald Trump is so close to the edge that he honestly will lose it. And that's the way that, to deal with this guy is that he, it, he obviously loses it in court. He can't control himself, and it wouldn't take anything. And I personally think that a lot of people would, would kind of find that, I don't know, have more respect for President Biden for kind of coming off kind of a, a little bit younger with a little bit more but feist in them or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how Donald Trump dispensed of the entire Republican Party. I mean, that's why they don't have a candidate. And I said that in 2016. I, I remember saying that this party, none of these people, not none of the old guard Republicans, nor the people um, like uh, Carly Fiorina, no, no professional you know, CEOs are ever going to throw in their hat against the Donald. They were all so humiliated that... No one's going to do it, and that's why we don't. They don't have anybody who can stand up because they were just. They wouldn't stand up to him, and they were just humiliated. That none of them, and none of them, like Jeb Bush, none of them can ever come back. Well, I think, um, I think the they had they've had so many t- uh, chances, they've had yep. so many exit ramps from the Donald yep. Trump train, and every time an exit comes up. They're like, ah, no, let's just keep our heads down a little longer. You know, it's, it's it'll end. It, we don't have to do anything, and it'll end by itself. And I yeah. think the people <laughs> who refuse to stand up and call Donald Trump out for his nonsense, I think they are the ones who are much more of a danger to our democracy than Donald Trump himself. He's a nut job. He's an outlier. Yeah. But the fact that people are trying to pretend that he is not nutty, that he is not impaired, that he is not an outlier, they're trying to treat him like somehow not only is he a normal politician, but he's actually a good politician. Those are the people who are a danger to us. Yeah. But you're right. Um, runaway train or runaway truck, they, they actually do end by themselves in a derailment or a big rack. That's up, and that's mm-hmm. what the Republican Party is, is headed for. So, Yeah. Paul, thank you so much for the call. Thanks. And um, we will be listening Sunday when you do your Kitchen Table Progressive show here on WCPT. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Have a nice one. Um, I wanted to uh, share a little bit with you. This whole Taylor Swift, you know, the right... Declaring that Taylor Swift is a psyop, that Taylor Swift, I kid you not, was recruited by the CIA and her relationship with Travis Kelsey is like all fake and it's designed to uh, promote Joe Biden, um, even the Wall Street Journal. Now, as, as I've explained before in a newspaper, the editorial pages, it's like a completely different publication. The news people 
and have a wall between themselves and the editorial people. So just because the Wall Street Journal has some of the far, farthest right editorials you're ever going to read, it doesn't mean that the reporters who work on the other side are bad. Sometimes they do really good work. And during the Trump administration, they actually broke a couple of stories. This was back before they had turned their uh, collective back on him. But even the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which tends to be right, mm, right, right is looking at this whole Taylor Swift situation like how crazy has the world gotten? How nutty has the world gotten? They wrote the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, wrote an editorial on the Taylor Swift PSYOP. When did I read this? This was yesterday. This was in yesterday's Wall Street Journal. What does it imply about the political vulnerabilities of Donald Trump that some of his wingmen are saying he might lose the 2024 election because of Taylor Swift. What does it imply about the... In other words, you've got a candidate that's so weak that you're saying you're actually nervous that a pop star could derail him. Later in the editorial, I I just have to read, (laughs) they were on fire. Later in the editorial, in the Wall Street Journal, saying, why are these crazy people? This is just crazy. This Taylor Swift is a creation of the CIA stuff. Here's one paragraph I just loved. Maybe the Chiefs will win the Super Bowl or maybe not. Maybe Ms. Swift and Mr. Kelsey will live happily ever after in a world historical setback for the art form of the breakup song or maybe not. Maybe she will endorse Mr. Biden again, or maybe not. But the CIA isn't orchestrating it all, and neither are the Illuminati, the Freemasons, Elvis, JFK, Bigfoot, Opus Dei, or alien lizard people living among us. The Wall Street Journal wants you to know that alien lizard people living among us are not responsible for Taylor Swift dating um, a member of the Kansas City Chiefs. Here's how it ends. A question, though, for the trolls. If they believe defeating Mr. Trump is so easy that Mr. Biden can do it merely by getting an endorsement from a singer who backed him in 2020, doesn't that suggest the GOP might be making a mistake by nominating such a weak candidate. On the Late Show with Seth Meyers, he addressed this whole Fox News hysteria about Taylor Swift. Um, I want to share a couple of minutes of it. You'll hear Seth Meyers talking, and then he has a bike three or four clips from things people have said on Fox, and then he comes back to uh, summarize. Listen to this. The musician praises a Republican candidate or expresses a conservative worldview. They're welcome on Fox News. Republicans thought we should hear the political opinions of guys like Gene Simmons, Ted Nugent, Kid Rock, but lose their minds at the idea that Taylor Swift might speak out. And again, she hasn't yet. And whether she does or doesn't is her right and her prerogative. Same with going to football games and dating whoever she wants. But Republicans even think that part is all part of a larger plot 
orchestrated by mysterious forces. As soon as you see all this stuff of, of Taylor Swift and her boyfriend uh, at the football game, everything, everybody just assumes at that point that there has to be some grand conspiracy theory behind it involving uh, the, the uh, Biden administration, involving the Biden campaign. And it's not for no reason. Vivek Ramaswamy claiming that this year's Super Bowl is going to be rigged in favor of the Chiefs. He says that's because it's going to set the stage for Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey to endorse President Biden on stage. Have you ever wondered why or how she blew up like this? Well, around four years ago, the Pentagon Psychological Operations Unit floated turning Taylor Swift into an asset during a NATO meeting. What kind of asset? A PSYOP for combating online misinformation. So is Swift a front for a covert political agenda? Yeah, man. Yeah. You cracked the case. America's never seen a popular musician go on tour, sell lots of records and date an athlete. The signs are all there. Let me get out my white pack. Joe Biden is the 46th president. He's running for his second term. 46 times 2 is 92. Travis Kelsey's number is 87. 92 minus 87 is 5. What has five sides? The Pentagon. Yeah. Jimmy Kimmel's making fun of it. Seth Meyers is making fun of it. Um, you know, I've seen some crazy stuff. But it doesn't get any crazier than this. One last real quick thing I want to share with you. Um, as I said before, Democratic strategist Simon Rosenberg was on MSNBC with um, Lawrence O'Donnell. Um, I think he was on Wednesday night. Um, I shared a little bit about what he had to say, but he talked about polling and he talked about Donald Trump and he talked about Joe Biden. And I didn't get a chance to share that with you. I want to share that with you now. Listen to this. What? Chairman Powell was saying is that, you know, it's remarkable where we are right now uh, compared to where we were just a few years ago. I mean, just go through the list, Lawrence. I'll do it really quick, right? I mean, strongest recovery in the G7, best job market since the 1960s, lowest uninsured rate in American history. You know, the stock market setting records every day, real wages galloping and strong, the deficit trillions of dollars less than it was. I mean, remarkable performance, no matter how you look at it. And we should be really proud of that as a country and as Democrats, proud of our president for having met his fundamental promise to us that he was going to get us to the other side of COVID successfully. I think we're there now. Uh couple of questions. Uh, well, let me start with polls. Is it time <laughs> to start looking at polls, something I really haven't been doing? Well, I mean, it's part of the discourse, right? You know, you can't put your head in the sand on this stuff, and you've got to try to make sense of it the best you can. I mean, last time I was on, you had an important ob observation, which is that the polling and the results that we're seeing in actual voting in states that have ads, like in Iowa and New Hampshire, tell us a little bit more about the election than these sort of broad general polls. And those polls and the results of those Iowa-New Hampshire primaries were not good for the Republicans, right? Low turnout in Iowa, lots of concerns about the Trump presidency among large chunks of Republicans. You had Trump, as you pointed out in the show last time, coming down 10 to 15 points below his, um, you know, below public polling that day. I think there's a lot of evidence so far. The most important data that we have is that Republicans are struggling, as they did in 2022, as they did in 2023. And even today, right, I mean, I, there was one bad poll for Biden today, but let's go through what we learned today in the data, right? Just today, 
We had Quinnipiac poll that had Biden up six points, 50-44, gaining five points since the last poll. The morning console poll had Biden gaining three points. We had the... Um, I have my notes here. The Economist YouGov poll, Biden gained two points. So in three polls today, we saw a two-point gain, three-point gain, five-point gain for Biden. And we've also seen just in the last few weeks polling that has Biden ahead of his 2020 results in New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. So the polling, if you want to paint a positive picture for Joe Biden, the data is there. There's also data showing that things are not so good, right? And that's because it's still really early. People are not engaged. Polling's all over the place. It's not all pointing in the same direction. And we have to be careful not to get blown around by the noise in the machine every day. And remember what Jen Psaki said, you know, um, who was uh, Biden's uh, director of communications for a while and has worked with a lot of different administrations. She said that really, if you want to look at polling and what it means, the only time it's really reflective of what might be happening in an election is probably two months before the actual election itself. She said the rest of it is, as you just heard from Simon Rosenberg, it's just wind. It's noise. And uh, the conservative columnists I read are in agreement that Donald Trump is probably at the peak of his popularity. Joe Biden has room to grow and is growing, and that's the important thing. He's doing better and better all the time as people start to be actually paying attention to who he is and what he's done. I think we're in good shape for where we are at this moment in time, and I think we should be optimistic. Let's take a break. We're going to talk about Ukraine when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. One of the leaders in the battle to continue our support for Ukraine has been our very own Illinois Congressman Mike Quigley. He joins us now uh, to talk about what is going on. Mike, thank you for being here. Glad to be back. Hope, uh, Happy New Year since I haven't talked to you. Since yes, time. Happy New Year to you, too. And uh, thank you for fighting the good fight, though uh, it seems to be... Um, an increasingly difficult fight on Capitol Hill to try to make some people understand why it's necessary to support Ukraine. Where do things stand right now? Well, uh, sometime uh, through today, through Sunday, we expect to see some sort of Senate package move over to the House. Uh, That that is, the uh, details will come over to us. Uh, And then... Uh, Schumer has promised that there'll be a vote in the Senate next week, um, and you know we'll see what happens from there. But you know what we know, we don't have the language of the text, but it includes aid for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. Uh, it will include uh, additional border security funding, uh, and then after that, we hear vaguely issues of asylum reforms. So uh, one of the problems is uh, it ties funds for Ukraine to what has always been a wildly contentious partisan fight, and that is uh, border policy or immigration reform, which is long overdue, to something that's really tough to get done. Uh, Once you do that, the calculus and the math gets hard. 
so we're trying to find some ways that this can get done, either if this package doesn't come over or it doesn't get put on the floor, uh, in some manner to get the Ukrainian funding done on its own if necessary. Chuck Schumer still confident that there will be a vote on that this week because, you know, what we're reading is uh, Donald Trump is conveying to all the Republicans on Capitol Hill, uh, I don't want any money. I don't want anything done on the border. I don't want it to look like Biden's doing anything. I don't want to give Joe Biden a win. You know, it's interesting. Um it's pretty clear that the sycophants are are listening to to Trump, uh, especially on the House side. I think the single reason why there's problem on the House side on helping Ukraine is I'd say about half of the Republicans are, are for it, and the other half are against it because they don't want to alienate uh, the president and his base and therefore their base. So, uh, you know, it's it's difficult to watch, but that's where we are. I still think it's going to pass the Senate. Um, you know, we're hearing Republican senators say, um, you know, I, I heard one senator say, if we're given an opportunity and we decided for political purposes not to do it, uh, we could be in serious trouble. A lot of their candidates would be in trouble back home. You know, for years they've said that they want to tighten the border. And here's your perfect opportunity. I mean, President Biden signaled that, uh, you know, he put proposals forward for additional border security, the resources. And then he signaled he was receptive to altering the asylum policy. Um, so now the Republicans, he's, he's basically calling them, calling their bet, saying, hey, you're serious? All right, here it is. So the whole world is watching. So you said that you think next that year, next week, yeah. uh, the Schumer's call them in on Monday, I guess. And I think next week they'll have the vote and then we'll see what happens with uh, Speaker Johnson. You've said that you think that um, there are definitely Republicans who support this. Um, but will those Republicans who support it have the courage to continue to support it if they know they are running afoul of their potential presidential nominee? Sure. Uh, that's the question. I think what you'll see over the weekend and the next week is full court press by uh, candidate Trump. Uh, to go against the words that you know he said for four years in the White House, you know, look, I mean, this proposal for, I haven't seen text is not HR two, which is pretty draconian, but it's uh, it's it's pretty dramatic. It's for what the Republicans have been asking for for some time. So, uh, you know, we'll see how much to answer your question. We'll see what happens in the next four or five days and how much pressure he can have. The problem is the more for him is the more pressure he puts on, the more wor the world realizes that the, the, re the Republicans are saying this is the primary issue, and there is an opportunity to address that issue in, in their own in their own words. And now, well, for political purposes, we we can't do that. I'll say right now, I think the two most important issues eventually going into next year is and always has been. 
uh, it's the old line, it's the economy, stupid. And you saw the numbers today, which were pretty robust uh, and a very strong outlook through the end of the year. Uh, I think the second issue that we've seen in recent elections, and that's the ultimate poll, is the issue of abortion and choice. And uh, clearly what we've seen is when abortion's on the ballot, Democrats do well. Uh, We've also, in the meantime, created a real election infrastructure there uh, of support in the states that will be battleground states like Wisconsin, like Pennsylvania. So, uh, well, as you know, a lot of things can happen between now and November. Mm-hmm. I don't think the economy will will be one of those issues. So now the, the Republicans, one of their last issues in their minds, might slip away from them, and, and Trump doesn't want that to happen. Well, um, you know, the Republicans in the House of Representatives made a big deal out of the fact that, you know, they weren't going to vote for any aid package, gosh darn it, unless it was tied to money for border reform. And then, like, the word started trickling out, you know, oh, wait, no, we don't want border reform. We don't want anything to happen. And um, and all of a sudden, the Mike Johnson's tune has changed. Even, you know, and and I guess it stands to reason, because as we've seen before, Republican congressmen tend to become a lot more blunt and a lot more honest if they're not running for re-election. But Republican congressperson Ken Buck was talking um, to reporters and addressing just this sort of flip-flop. I want to play that clip for you now. Listen to Ken Buck. This is not a high crime or misdemeanor. It's not an impeachable offense. This is a policy difference. Um, let me, from the outset, say there is a crisis on the border. Uh, the, the law needs to be enforced. Um, but uh, if we start going down this path of impeachment with a uh, cabinet official, uh, we are opening a door as Republicans that we don't want to open. The next president, who is a Republican, will face the same scrutiny from Democrats. It's wrong, and, and we should not set this precedent. Have leaders been trying to convince you otherwise? And is there anything that will change your mind? Or when you say solid no, you mean solid no. Yeah, I'm not I'm not changing my mind. I believe I have done my due diligence and, and I am standing firm uh, at this point on, on this. If there's some new evidence, I'm happy to look at it, but I don't believe there will be. And in that same interview where he said he wasn't going to vote to impeach uh, the Department of Homeland Security head, he also said... You know, like he conveyed his disgust. He was like, you know, first we insisted that uh, border funding be included. And now all of a sudden that's a problem. I mean, you could you could hear the eye roll in his speech. And like I say, you know, he's not going to run for reelection, which seems to set a lot of Republicans free to actually see the world clear eyed. But even if Schumer gets a nice aid package with border um, aid and Ukraine aid and Israel aid and aid for Taiwan together and out of the Senate. Do you have any faith that anybody in the House of Representatives uh, is going to cross the aisle to vote with for this with the Democrats? Um, well, again, on the Republican side, I think about half of them would, would be uh, extremely interested in doing it, if only for the issue of Ukraine. So, you know, I just have to touch on the main point here, and that's impeaching a cabinet official. Uh, no cabinet official has been impeached since the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, and the constitutional experts beyond 
Representative Buck say, obviously, you can't impeach a secretary because you disagree with him on policy. Same as said senior House GOP leader uh, Tom McClintock said there's no evidence of constitutional impeachable offenses, and you can't just impeach over policy disagreements. And you're right. The sad part is, you know, Speaker Ryan and others, uh, their courage inflates once they've left or are leaving, right? Former uh, Trump officials who suddenly uh, grow a backbone when they no longer have to worry about him signing their checks. So that that is discouraging. All you can do is present the case to the American people. Um, you know, there's, again, about half the Republicans are folks that I feel like on, on a good day I can work with and maybe we can get something done. Uh, the rest of them, uh, I just can't count on it. So we're trying to thread the needle here. And again, uh, the, I suspect there'll be some attempts by Democratic leadership to use procedural means to move legislation like this. If not, we're going to have to try to use those procedural means, probably what we call a discharge petition uh, on Ukraine standing alone. So, Well, that's what I was going to ask you, is if this, yeah. if a combo package is just too much for Republicans in Congress to, to swallow, could it all be split off again? And how would that be? Would there be an aid package or would there be an aid package for Israel and another aid package for Ukraine and another Indo-Pacific aid package? My hunch is that uh, if this fails uh, and a procedural method to get the bill on the floor fails, there'll be individual efforts. Uh, they may be latched on to bigger legislation, other spending bills, perhaps. Uh, and given the difficulties, you know, I'm now in the business uh, on that point. Just talking about Ukraine is walking across the aisle and finding out how many Republicans I could get for X amount of aid uh, in a rushed form to Ukraine. I mean, the, the, we have to remember there's a pipeline here mm -hmm. and it takes a while to fill that pipeline and get to the aid in the field. In the meantime, time and ammunition are running out. Uh, you're starting to see the Russians take advantage of this. And you're starting to see the Ukrainian military ration what it does. It's the most important conflict since the Second World War. It's hard to imagine that people don't recognize that our leadership here is a strategic and a moral imperative. You know, the words of General Milley and Secretary Austin, when you Combine them, you know, if you allow Putin's aggression to succeed, uh, you're inviting more bloodshed and creating a risk that will be doubling our defense budget because there's no way in the world Putin doesn't see beyond Ukraine to, to Moldova, to Georgia, mm -hmm. and uh, a bridge through the Baltics to Kaliningrad. And now you've got NATO involved in an article that brings us into it. And uh, and I guess finally that that desire to show resolve is to allies and adversaries alike, that there are those in Tehran and Beijing who look at this and say, how far will the West go when the pressure really gets there? Yeah, and I think Putin and Putin is just waiting to see who wins the next election hanging in there till then. When this failed last time, um, 
Ukrainian funding. The press excerpts coming out of Moscow were, uh, quote, no one needs Ukraine anymore, especially the U.S. Uh, the downfall of Ukraine means the downfall of Biden, two birds with one stone. Last quote, well done, Republicans are standing firm. That's good for us, meaning the Russians. So uh, this is this yeah. is the party of Eisenhower. This is the party of Reagan. Uh, if they had heard the words of President Trump, they, I, I can't imagine they wouldn't have been disgusted that here's someone who is the ultimate Putin appeaser and, uh, and doesn't recognize just what this means on a moral level. I mean, President Reagan's the one that put the Cold War on a moral level, calling the Soviets and others the evil empire. So <laughs> I don't know how bizarre the world has become, but it is in our interest. Uh, this is going to be a very complicated, stressful three or four weeks. Um, I'm hoping that cooler, smarter heads prevail and we get the job done. I am uh, astounded by many things going on in the Republican Party over the last few years, but nothing more so than what appears to be a complete reversal on Russia. I mean, there were Republicans I can remember who were worried about Russia when Russia wasn't even really in the picture the way it is now, when Russia wasn't actively uh, trying to take over someone else's territory. And the, it was like the Republican Party, that was one of their core values, was opposing uh, governments like that of Vladimir Putin. And do we attribute this whole turnaround? Is it just attributable to Trump? Are there other forces in the Republican Party uh, that have decided, you know, Putin ain't so bad and maybe he's a good guy and maybe we should be on his side? Is it just Trump or is there more to it than that? You know, I, it's a great question. Um I think you got you got to extend it to beyond Trump, because uh, there are those in the grand old party that frankly admire Putin. They use some of his talking points when they talk about everything from LGBTQ. Uh, he's more in agreement with them. Uh, there are those who talk about him and uh, you know uh, the leader of Hungary with admiration. Strong men like that, um, you know, it, it, it's just extraordinary at that point. But they, I guess one of the other things they would agree with Putin on is that the U.S. should pull out of NATO. So there, Trump always acted as if Putin had something on him, um, and he did respect and say complimentary things about strong men all over the world. Um, and I think there are those that are in the same vein. Let me extend it to the far right of the American people. You start to look at some of the polling that's very disturbing. Um, you know, what, 25% of the American people think that the January 6th attack was plotted by the FBI and that it was a justifiable political exchange um, and that the more troubling polling shows something very striking to similar questions and polling over a dozen years ago in Hungary, right? 
that is democracy always the best form of government? Um, and the answer is, you know, they they agree that it isn't always the best. So sort of the seeds of how the uh, leader of Hungary got in place, how Trump got in place. And uh, I, I fall back to the book I read in high school. You know, it can't happen here. It, it can. So when you, you talk about the issue of is it just Trump um, and a few Republicans, I, I think that cancer lies deeper with a broader number of Americans that that seem to favor authoritarian rule. It's it's hard to imagine that's true. Uh, I'm not sure it's new. Uh, maybe at this level it is, but uh, if you saw what happened, as we see as we saw what happened in the 30s, you know there have always been seeds of such. Um, thought in this country. I saw a bunch of interviews. Some reporter must have gone to a Trump rally <clears throat> because they were real diehard MAGAs. And the reporter kept going around asking people about, you know, would they be OK with Trump if being a dictator? And they were like, oh, yeah. Oh, ab- absolutely. And but it seemed, you know, because I've talked before about how there's almost a religious cult like attraction to Donald Trump for some people. It, it, go, it goes beyond intellect. It goes it doesn't have anything to do with policy. It is this sort of deep lizard brain connection to this guy. This guy is our he's our savior. He's our leader. He can do no wrong. And, you know, they were they were talking like, you know, they were absolute. I don't know if they would be absolutely in favor of a dictatorship run by Mike Quigg. But they were absolutely ready to sign on to any kind of Donald Trump dictatorship. And, um, you know, I think that I think that there is um, a connection people feel some people feel with him that goes beyond anything that's rational or, or understandable. But beyond those hardcore followers, there is this other layer of people who I don't know, I think for for the most part, they just don't care. You know, I mean, obviously you are, you know, you live and breathe politics. I'm right behind you in a different way. But, you know, I've I've talked to even, you know, a lot of people. Oh, you know, I try not to pay attention to what's going on because it it just upsets me. Or, you know, when it gets closer to the election, maybe I'll, I'll, you know, pay more attention. And I I guess that means, Mike, that they have a lot of faith in people like you and me to to keep the home fires lit. I don't know how else to explain it. Yeah, well, but the old line was the most. Uh, most powerful action is inaction. Um, so, um, uh, obviously, we are involved at a, at a much higher level, at least in, in our mindset, of a, than than the vast majority of American people. And you, you see that with the pathetic turnout in elections. So it it is frustrating. Uh, I just tell folks who are listening um, the way to respond and not get down is is to be as active as you possibly can <clears throat> to engage. Um, you know, uh, what do you do in these troubling times? Uh, I say you volunteer at a hospital, hospice, food bank, uh, 
a, a place that saves animals just to keep your mindset positive mm-hmm. and to spread, I think, what's a, a good karma and attitude. And then obviously get involved in politics. Um, this, this country is very close on these numbers. And we got to remember that in 2016, the president, Trump, won by in the king's the key swing states by roughly a number of people that could fit in soldier field. So uh, my message to folks who get depressed listening to us is uh, you can make a difference. That difference happened and mattered in 2020, uh, and it'll happen this year as well. Democratic conventions here uh, engage, involve. Uh, you know, if there are races here that you can get involved with, great, but there's going to be ones nearby. And again, uh, be of good heart. The, the economy is solid. The issue that seems to drive people second most in these swing voters is choice. And um, uh, it's not easy. It's going to get worse. It's going to get more complicated. It's going to get more dangerous for all of us. Um, but the alternative isn't to be an ostrich. It's it's to engage. You can make a difference. And uh, the worst thing you could do is be apathetic or to let that that angst and the fear that's out there um, paralyze you because uh, the world needs you now more than ever. Mike, I know that you and another member, other members of the Ukrainian caucus had a um, had a press conference. I think it was uh, just last Tuesday to kick off what you were calling Ukrainian week. What is it that you want either your fellow legislators or just the American public to know about and think about or maybe do this week? Well, the idea is to is most importantly is to get the military aid to the Ukrainians. When the, I first met with members of the Rada, there were five women who had left. One of them showed me uh, an app on her phone which showed that her two-year-old child was under a missile attack. She was getting the alert. Uh, and, and we talked about economic aid, humanitarian aid, and military aid. And uh, at that moment, one of the women who was a mother said, right now, military aid is humanitarian aid. So uh, I recall I've been to Ukraine twice since the war started, and I stood on the ground of Bucha that was a mass grave. And and there we we saw evidence of the flattened maternity hospital. Uh, We grew up watching our first indications for most of us not enough to be uh, remember the Second World War. It was like textbooks or the documentary, The World at War. Uh, and we grew up with this notion of, you know, never again. And Santayana, those that cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Well, we have no excuse. We remember the past. Uh, and we have to do something. If, if the U.S. and the West had not been involved, Ukraine never would have given up. It would have been a war of insurgency. But just one element of what we're talking about here is the genocide on a mass scale would have been taking place. You know, we're reports that there's 100,000 children that have been stolen and taken into Russia. Uh, and that that this is just uh, the tip of the iceberg of what can happen in Eastern Europe. So, uh, again, we can't let a 
sovereign democratic country be wiped off the face of the earth. Yeah. We recognize Putin's aims are beyond Ukraine and it will affect us. And uh, we need to show the resolve that past presidents have spoken about so eloquently to our allies and adversaries alike. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on, on so many of those points. And I am I'm really disheartened that there isn't just this overwhelming tidal wave of support for Ukraine in this country, because if people can't see how this conflict has ramifications for the rest of the world, they are not paying attention. Um, one real quick thing before I let you go, Mike, I just want you to know that on Wednesday night, I was able to view the video eulogy that Pete Crozier put together for Lynn Bramer. And uh, a part of one of the films that I saw was you talking about Lynn and reading about Lynn. Uh, it looked like you were on the congressional floor. And yes. um, what a wonderful thing that was that you did for Sarah and Wilson by doing that. I, uh, I tell people that uh, Lynn was a, a friend of mine, but that hardly is, uh, you know, uh, something I could say. I mean, thousands of Chicagoans who met Lynn could say that. And I would say uh, tens of thousands could say it that never met him. <laughs> uh, There's something very special about how he tied uh, so much of Chicago together. Uh, and I, one of the things I stressed when I spoke about him from the heart is, uh, you know, he always seemed to... Uh, uh, be able to communicate what we needed to hear at that time and good times and bad and um, uh, let us hear music that reminded us of that and uh, but you know I can't believe it's it's been a year but I know. Uh, it's a void uh, that uh, is very hard to fill but uh, it was just an honor and a pleasure to be able to speak on his behalf and uh my best to his, uh, his widow and his son. Well, they were moving words, and they echoed what a lot of us felt, and I'm, I was so glad you were able to do that. And thank you so much for joining us today. It, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Mike. Thanks for having us. We'll talk soon. Yes, we will. We're going to break for news now. We're going to be back with more after this. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. We are going to continue our discussion about what's going on in Ukraine with Professor Joel Ostro, political science professor at Benedictine University. Joel, how are you today? I'm doing great, Joan. Great to be back with you. Thanks. Are you going to have a, just the best weekend ever? Uh, okay. <laughs> if you say so, boss. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you are commanded to have the best weekend ever. Um, that works for me. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, uh, there's so much going on. Uh, we need so much uh, to catch up. First and foremost, let's start with uh, this conflict between President Zelensky and his top general. Um, what what is going on? Is that a corruption issue, Joel? I mean, because hasn't the general been pretty effective? And from everything I've read, at least in Ukraine, he's every bit as popular as uh, Vladimir Zelensky. What's going on there? Give us the lay of the land. Yeah, and, and some of the reports suggest that there's some kind of 
I don't know, political jealousy or wariness. And, and I just, I refuse to buy that. I, I don't see that at all. Um, Zeluzhny's, that's the general's name, has been very popular and effective, you're right. Um, and, and he and Zelensky have been very close uh, since, since the beginning of the war. Uh, now, in November, uh, the general uh, made a statement. I don't remember if it was in an interview or um, some public statement where he described the situation on the ground as a stalemate. Oh. Um, and that mm-hmm. was accurate, but I don't think President Zelensky uh, appreciated that in terms of morale or um, um, you know, recruiting reasons. Uh, they've had trouble recruiting more people to fight. Um, that there's definitely a, a constraint in terms of numbers. Uh, Ukraine's not nearly the size population as Russia. So that's been a, a difficulty, and there's been mounting um, uh, resentment over the, the amount of time that soldiers have had to stay on the front in Ukraine, the numbers of wounded and um, being returned back to the, to the fighting. Um, all that's kind of out of necessity. Well, okay, uh, time, that wasn't maybe the smartest yeah, thing in the world to say, but well, certainly it doesn't it seem to justify being put out to pasture. Um, I think maybe uh, President Zelensky um, sort of wanted Zelensky to stay in his lane, um, but that was the beginning of the time. I, I, I saw it as trying to uh, up the stakes and sway the vote in the U.S. Congress uh, back in November uh, when there seemed to be hope that a funding bill could get through. Um, and I don't think at all that that backfired. In fact, I think uh, General Zeluzhny's comments were accurate and perhaps mobilized Europe to act more quickly and, and uh, the, NATO, the other NATO members to act more quickly uh, and, and to realize the the dangers of, of failure on the part of the United States uh, and, and we should be accurate. Failure on the United States House of Representatives, meaning the Republican Party in the House of Representatives, um, that's where the roadblock is. Um, and I think, uh, um, you know, that was a part of it. Uh, it it's certainly, there, there's never been a whisper that General Zeluzhny um, is at all corrupt. Um, there have been revelations of, of corruption, and, and I would like to get to that to keep it in perspective, but there have been revelations of that that certainly opponents of, um, of Ukraine uh, in the Republican Party have seized on, um, and ultimately uh, those individuals who were guilty of corruption uh, fall under uh, Zeluzhny's command, so he bears ultimate responsibility. Um, uh, and yet <coughs> Ukraine has been particularly effective at, at finding uh, instances of corruption, rooting it out, and punishing people. So, you know, I don't know why. If maybe Zelensky thinks that if he uh, makes a fall guy that that could help turn the tide for more support and show their seriousness. Um, and then the final piece is the downing of that plane that apparently uh, was carrying... Uh, several dozen Ukrainian POWs as part of a POW swap, uh, swap. Um, and, and Ukraine accuses Russia of uh, putting those POWs at risk by not identifying the plane, which was a legitimate, and, and those planes are frequent targets because they 
carry missiles and missile parts uh, for the Russian military. Uh, but on this one, apparently, instead of missiles and missile parts, or perhaps in addition to those, they also had several dozen POWs that were going to be part of a prisoner swap. So um, all three of those things together uh, perhaps um, ha have combined uh, to move Zelensky to make a change, although clearly he's being careful about it because he does know that this general is extremely popular because of uh, the enormous success that the Ukrainian military has shown uh, against all odds. So. And I have been reading about one thing you touched on, which is a movement in Ukraine to pass some kind of laws about how long somebody can be in service. Because, you know, um, they, they do have a, a limited population and uh, they do need people. I've, I, I saw something recently that I'm not quite sure how they would bring to pass, but that they want even Ukrainians living in other countries to be subject to a draft. Um, and, you know, um, I talked to you about this New Yorker article and yeah. um, about that uh, Masha Gessen had written this really long article about Ukraine. And here's one thing that sort of ties into this conversation we're, we're, uh, we are having. Um, it talks about how Ukraine's main objective remains the liberation of occupied territories. But, they, but she says Russia is now invested in war itself. Military advances are secondary to the goal of keeping its war economy and propaganda machine churning. And then there's a quote from uh, Zagaran, I don't know how do you say that name, uh, Zandarandyek. Uh, this war is not going to end with negotiations. Why would Putin want to negotiate with the Ukrainian counteroffensive failing and Western consensus cracking? Time is on Putin's side. Is that how it looks to you? It's how it looks to Putin. Um, mm. And um, but at the same time, the EU just passed uh, and seems to have. Um, well, they were going to work around Hungary's objections, no matter what. Um, I'm, I'm convinced that if Hungary uh, tried to veto, that Hungary would have been expelled from the Union, and the European Union would still have supported Ukraine. Uh, with this uh, package of both uh, economic support and military support. At the same time, many of the EU members, Germany, um, well, NATO members, Germany, UK, uh, Denmark, the Netherlands, have, have pledged and have come through, and, and even Greece, uh, with, with, um, uh, to sort of step in and, and fill the gap that the United States is failing on, uh, given the current political mess here. Um, to, to continue to provide weapons for Ukraine to, to be able to keep up the fight. It's not sufficient, but, but, it's, um, but it goes a long way uh, towards closing the gap. Um, so uh, it really, to call the counteroffensive a failure, it did not achieve what it wanted, but as we have discussed many times, it didn't have a chance to because um, we, the West, were so slow to provide even the M1 tanks that Ukraine had been calling for since um, a year ago and more. Um, they still have not received a single F-16 fighter, although those are said to be on the way within weeks, maybe days. Um, and uh, so uh, there's really great hope uh, for 
the spring and summer for Ukraine if they get those F-16s and they get more of the advanced weaponry. Much of that has already been pledged and budgeted by the U.S. and doesn't require more funding, but um, but for missiles and artillery shells and the like, uh, that does require the funding. And so ultimately the success of the counteroffensive is going to hinge upon um, U.S. domestic politics, uh, not so much unity of the coalition, uh, because the rest of that coalition remains pretty firmly unified. It is House Republicans that are the problem, and Donald J. Trump, uh, who is their leader. I want to. We're going to take a break. I want to talk to you when we come back more about how the upcoming U.S. election. Uh, could play out in what happens in Ukraine. I'm talking to political science professor Joel Ostro from Benedictine University. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by political science professor Joel Ostro from Benedictine University. We are talking about what is going on in Ukraine and uh, whether or not there, this stalemate, as described by the Ukrainian general, is because of a lack of uh, material or men, <clears throat> um, it does seem to be that Putin has always been playing a waiting game, that Putin has always been waiting for the will of the West to crack, for them to just be tired of this whole thing. Uh, I also think a big part of that is what you just mentioned, Joel. I'm waiting to see uh, how the election goes in 2024. Let's say we reelect Joe Biden. Let's say we take back the Congress and hang on to the Senate. Let's say all those wonderful things happen. What effect would that have on the way Vladimir Putin operates? Well, the unfortunate thing is, is... Um uh, Ukraine probably, uh, I don't want to say can't survive, but it would be very, very difficult um, if there is no U.S. funding until January of 2025. Uh, that, that's going to be too long for them to wait. Um, I would hope that the Biden administration would find another way, a workaround uh, to, support, uh, to support this war effort. Um, if, if the Republican Party continues to obstruct. Um, um, there have been whispers about its efforts, but uh, um, it seems like that's getting more complicated. Um, to wit, uh, about $350 billion of Russian assets have been frozen. They're held by Western banks, uh, mostly many U.S. banks, and the $350 billion might be those held by U.S.-owned uh, banks and other interests. Um, and I have reached out to several constitutional law scholars to try to figure out the situation because my understanding is, given the wide berth that the President of the United States has over foreign policy under multiple Supreme Court decisions uh, throughout history, um, I thought that the administration could make the decision to seize those assets and repurpose them, uh, basically make them available to Ukraine. Um, I, I still believe that the president has that authority, uh, but it appears that they are trying to go through Congress to get a law passed to authorize, to give him that authority. Uh, Officially, with no question. Well, no, th with a law uh, mm -hmm. that explicitly states that. Um, and I can only see two reasons that they would 
want a, want a, a law to be passed, my guess is they would uh, anticipate court challenges either from uh, people like Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan Chase, um, who uh, hold, and others like him, who holding those Russian assets, uh, even when they've been frozen, earn interest off of them and they make money off of it. Uh, and so they might challenge that precedent in the courts. Um, they might face challenges from uh, right-wing Russia supporters like the Heritage Foundation and other Trump supporters. Um, and even though the Supreme Court throughout history has uh, given the president authority over foreign affairs, uh, this court has violated uh, regularly, this activist court regularly violates uh, centuries of legal practice going back to the Magna Carta and basically uh, ignores precedent and doesn't give a hoot about precedent. Um, and so perhaps the administration fears that there would be such long delays with those court processes and uncertainty with what the Supreme Court would do to the powers of the presidency uh, that, uh, that they want a law to be passed to, to negate all that. But I don't see how that law gets through this uh, Congress unless... Uh, the Republicans in the House think that no one will understand what it means and so they can get away with it, but uh, I doubt it um, uh, because this Republican House supports Russia and Putin rather than democracy in the West. Okay, well, uh, hopefully, even with the uh, Congress we have now, and even if it requires you know, taking out all of the border stuff that seems to have so upset the potential presidential nominee on the Republican side. Let's say we do get aid for Ukraine passed mm. um, and, and that pipeline keeps flowing. What I guess what I was trying to ask is that if okay. indeed Democrats mm. maintain or mm. expand power in the next administration, mm. would that be a blow to Vladimir Putin? Would Vladimir oh God, Putin yeah. take that as... Okay, well, things aren't going to get better for me. They're only going to get worse. Maybe it's yeah. time to claim that I'm ready to go to the negotiating table. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and even if, uh, if uh, I think it's about $62 billion of budget authorization, this isn't money that would be spent. It would be authorization up to that amount. Uh, that would, um, in addition to the other support that Ukraine is getting from our other NATO allies, um, would ensure a flow of um, a combination of weaponry that would uh, give Ukraine control of the skies um, and um, really undermine uh, any hopes that Russia has of not only gaining any more territory but holding on to much of the territory that it seized uh, two years ago. It's, it, does... it would definitely change things on the ground. It well, that, that one quote definitely, you know... I don't see, you know, with the potential of, I mean, let's just say in our worst nightmares, Donald Trump regains the presidency. Well, you know, Vladimir Putin isn't going to pack up his toys and leave Ukraine before he sees how this shakes out, um, because things could change um, a whole lot. There was, uh, as part of this article in The New Yorker, there was um, discussion of what a negotiated settlement might look like. And it said that last November, uh, the NATO chief or a former NATO chief who had been trying to 
bring about peace negotiations, suggested that NATO might accept a Ukraine that didn't include the territories currently occupied by Russia. Such an arrangement could effectively turn the front line into a border and end the fighting without opening negotiations with the Russians. Um, what do you think about that idea? Is that an idea that is still being talked about? Uh, I don't know the answer to the latter part, uh, but my first thought was, um, you know, that would be contingent uh, on the rump Ukraine uh, being included, joining NATO and the EU. Um, in a sense, that would be a profound defeat for Putin, uh, uh, and it would be an enormous risk uh, for NATO. Um, because um, if Ukraine is a full-fledged NATO member and Russia tries to move that border again, then NATO is obligated to come to the defense of Ukraine. And if NATO doesn't come to the defense of Ukraine, uh, that could very that would spell the, the end of NATO um, at the end of the alliance and and really uh, chaos and conflict as possible. Um, all over the world, but certainly throughout Europe. Um, I worry about what such a solution would mean for other territories that Putin might covet uh, of mm -hmm. the former Soviet Union. Uh, I don't think that Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania would be uh, particularly uh, amused by that kind of solution um, that would cede territory to Russia. Um, um, they might... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time uh, seeing that approach as being viable. Um, it is, of course, uh, something that people have been talking about and wondering about for uh, you know for over a year now. Um, in the the scenario that has come to pass, where the counteroffensive didn't achieve much because the counteroffensive was underarmed. Um, I, I really think it's unfair to call the counteroffensive a failure. What, what, what failed was um, the delivery of, of the uh, technology and equipment necessary to have made such a counteroffensive possible. Um, it's incredible that they've achieved a stalemate given the shortage. So, yeah. Um, so I look at, I still look at, um, at, at what Ukraine has achieved as, as, incredible success, um, but also at overwhelming cost. Uh, and it is clear that Ukrainian Ukraine's military forces are increasingly exhausted, uh, both those that are still in the fight and, mm -hmm. and the available numbers are being exhausted in the other meaning of that word. Um, so it, it really is a pivotal moment, and it really is unfortunate that... Um, that um, our politics have, have gotten so uh, off the rails. Yeah, amen to that. I'm talking to Benedictine University political science professor Joel Ostro. He is an, he is an expert on Russia, and uh, we are going to take a break, but there's lots more to talk about when we come back. You know, earlier, um, as you know, when I was talking to callers, people referenced this um, possible deal to get equipment to Ukraine 
um, bypassing our Congress by sort of giving equipment to Greece and having that end up in Ukraine. I'm going to talk to Joel Ostro about that and other things when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are bringing ourselves up to date on the situation surrounding Ukraine and the conflict there. I'm talking to political science professor Joel Ostro. He's with Benedictine University and is an expert on Russia. Um, earlier today, um, Joel, I was taking calls, and one of my callers asked about this um, potential um, maneuver where getting around Congress, uh, President Biden could ship material to Greece, and then Greece could share that material with Ukraine. And I hadn't heard anything about it. So, of course, being being well-read, my listeners sent me like a Business Insider link, a Newsweek link, and all these links where people are talking about this. And here's what Business Insider wrote. Joe Biden appears to have found a way around the Republican Party's blockade of Ukraine aid using a little-known presidential power. And it basically states that a U.S. president can author the, authorize the transfer of weapons deemed to be surplus to the United States uh, to other countries for little or no money. And apparently under that provision, we're going to be sending Greece um, some aircraft, some tanks, uh, eight engines for certain kinds of planes, etc., and uh, so forth. Not really um, exactly determining what of that goes on to Ukraine. But according to uh, Antony Blinken, Greece should explore ways of providing weapons from its own arsenal to Ukraine. Okay, that makes sense to me. I hadn't read anything about this. Um, Is this going to make a difference? We've been doing that for the entirety of the war and and have done similar even before. uh, Poland, uh, what was it? Poland sent, uh, uh, I think it was older tanks and fighter planes uh, when they got updated equipment up to NATO standards from the U.S. and, and other NATO members. Um, uh, Germany and the U.K. have sent uh, older tanks uh, as they have replaced them with newer ones. Uh, in the news the other day, the United States, uh, I think Ecuador, purchased uh, new weapons of some sort from the United States on the condition that they send their uh, older ones, the decommissioned ones, the ones they're replacing, uh, to Ukraine. Um, so, uh, and and I'm going to have to go back and reread. I, I'm not sure I would trust Business Insider necessarily for the details on this one from Greece. Uh, because I might have read it wrong, but my initial reading of the situation with Greece was uh, they were purchasing uh, uh, replacement uh, equipment, tanks, whatever it was, uh, that those were purchases under standard maintenance upgrade uh, as a NATO member. Um, And so I think the question is always what what happens to the the older uh, equipment. And indeed, that's one of the reasons... Uh, that the F-16s from Denmark and uh, the Netherlands have been slow uh, to be delivered. Um, They were sending those F-16s 
because they were older models replaced with newer ones or replaced with F-23s, and they had been mothballed for so long that, that the service on them to get them operational has taken longer than expected. Um, and uh, so it, it's not like we're sending brand-new, shiny F-16s to Ukraine. That, that's mm-hmm. never been what we were going to be sending. Uh, and even the M1 tanks, uh, one reason they've been slower is because we've been sending uh, or promising older models that are being replaced with newer ones. So um, well, that's let's pretty standard. To, and, we... yes, that should be under presidential authority. Yeah. The authority is to allow uh, high-technology weapons manufactured in the U.S. and sold to any other country as a direct sale, the U.S. has to authorize the transfer of those original materials to any other country, uh, and the president has the authority to uh, to authorize those transfers. Well, um, I I looked up the same a news story on Newsweek, and okay. uh, Newsweek says that there was a letter uh, that apparently became public from Secretary of State Antony Blinken to the mm-hmm. Greek Prime Minister, and it says we you know. Um, We continue to be interested in the defense capabilities that Greece could transfer or sell to Ukraine. And uh, apparently they're offering financing of up to $200 million for Greece. But then later in the text of the article, it also said that there have been um, there's been at least one uh, multi-million dollar grant for defense given to Greece. And it is possible that another one could be. In, in the pipeline. So it sounds like, um, at, at the very least, if, if indeed Greece is buying these, it is they are heavily, heavily subsidized. And that's also not particularly unique. Greece is a full NATO member, um, part of the alliance, and, and the way we uh, handle um, uh, providing uh, munitions and and defense materials to our NATO allies is different than how weapon sales go to other countries. So the situation, say, with Ecuador, um, Ecuador, that's a straight-out purchase, and then uh, we just attached conditions that, okay, but whatever, anything you had before, you got to send to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But it's not not unusual that, that there would be a subsidy deal. You know, you once again just touched on the EU, which reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you when we talked about this before. Hungary. Hungary is a member of the EU. Hungary is a member of NATO. Um, But they don't seem to be a very good member of the EU and a very good member of of NATO. Um, I know that Hungary, now that Turkey's fallen into line, Hungary is still the lone voice against Sweden being a full-fledged, good-standing member of uh, NATO. Um, Hungary has also, as far as I know, made some noises because there's been talk about, if not NATO, welcoming at least Ukraine into the European Union. And um, Hungary, you know, has had some things to say about that. Um, Can they kick him out? I mean, the Hungary that exists now... I don't know that the rest of NATO is really going to want to fight and die to preserve the sanctity of Hungary as it exists at this moment in time. And Hungary's economy has been so dependent on EU financing that they're really shooting themselves in the foot. Um, yeah, they can be kicked out of both the EU and NATO. Uh, and um, I've argued for a while that it makes no sense at all that they are in the European Union. They don't 
conform to any of the European Union's uh, democracy or human rights standards. Uh, Turkey, as a member of NATO, um, is a pretty critical member of NATO. We've tolerated policies in Turkey that uh, that we don't necessarily like, but they do have the second largest military in NATO, and um, and uh, they use that to their advantage to gain benefits. Uh, but we also benefit from Turkey's membership. We get nothing out of Hungary's membership. They got. There's no business Hungary being a NATO or an EU member at this point. Not, not at least at a minimum, their membership ought to be suspended uh, until there's uh, political change, and because um, they're ruled by a dictator. Yeah, and should there be some sort of incursion that affects <clears throat> Hungary's boundaries, hun- Hungary's right to exist? Um, I mean, we're a member of NATO. I can't think of any country that would be less popular for us to send troops to fight and die to defend. Okay, well, maybe that's not true. We certainly wouldn't send troops to fight and die for Iran, but they're not a member of NATO. Um, You know, Hungary is supposed to be in the club. They're supposed to be one of us. It is so sad, too, because uh, Hungary was really the starting point of, of the collapse of communism in Europe in 1989. Um, it is the place where uh, East Germans were allowed to pass through the Hungarian border into Austria as a way to get to West Germany, and that ultimately brought down the wall. Uh, Hungary was the reformist state, the, the most reformist economy uh, during the Soviet period, um, had the most vibrant anti-communist movement, and and um, uh, and and here they are uh, um, under the grip of of a pretty pretty brutal dictator. Um, and Viktor Orban has been there for a long time, and uh, and his um, partnership with Putin is stronger than his commitment to either the EU or NATO. Um, like I say, he's got. There's no business. Yeah. Uh, Hungary under Orban being part of either of those organizations. I see this, and you see this, but is it just that we're hoping Hungary comes around? We're hoping that with enough carrots we can bring them back into the fold, or is this just the a bureaucracy moving at a glacial pace? Like, yeah, we should get rid of them. Yeah, one of these days somebody's going to have to file the paperwork and get that process started. Why? Why can we see this, but it's seemingly nothing is happening among those people who could actually make something happen? Oh, everyone sees it, but it would be a, a really, um, I don't want to say controversial, but it would, it would be an extremely loud gesture to even suspend their membership in either the EU or NATO. I believe it is warranted. I believe it's been warranted for a long time. Um, I so think you think they just don't have the hung- guts? To make a oh, I think the like EU that. does have the guts. I, I, I think the only reason Hungary appro- uh, didn't cast a veto on the $54 million, uh, billion dollar, uh, package that the EU just recently passed is because they were told that uh, they had come to the last straw hmm. uh, and that the EU meant it. Um, so uh, and, so they and blinked? my expectation is that the same will be the case for NATO and Sweden. Really? I mean, Turkey had had a quasi-legitimate uh, point about Sweden. Uh, 
it was they a, had a yeah they bogus, had a beef with Sweden bogus point it was bogus but but they did have something of a beef they could point to Hungary's got Hungary's just supporting Russia that's all it is that's not and that wasn't where Turkey was at at least publicly uh, on that issue so yeah I think my hope is that it will be the same with uh, with uh, the NATO situation with Sweden. Um, you and, and Hungary I were, will be told that they're out if they don't comply. Well, I, I'm glad somebody is um, is implementing the ideas, the great ideas that you and I come up with and talk <laughs> about on this show. Um, the but, whole point of this New Yorker article, it was kind of uh, a kind of a downer. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I know the situation in Ukraine isn't great. But, um, like, for instance, there's this one, there's a Ukraine person, a Ukrainian uh, activist person that gets quoted a lot in the article. And um, uh, Masha Gessen uh, goes on to quote them again by saying that one of their fears is that if this war goes on long enough, Ukraine would become more like Russia, autocratic, Mm -hmm. corrupt, nihilistic. Russia is Russia because Russia is, quote, fighting Nazis, this person said, referring to Putin's, of course, fake pretense for the war. Mm -hmm. And we risk becoming Russia because we are actually fighting Nazis. Um, A, I had to kind of think about that. Um, But it's this idea that somehow the very act of being in this fight for their lives is changing the character of the Ukrainian people. Do you agree with that? Um, well, let me start in case uh, uh, people don't know who Masha Gessen is. Um, she is, uh, uh, I have the utmost respect for Masha um, and her work uh, throughout her long career, uh, which started as a journalist in the former Soviet Union. Um, she has always been a bold and courageous, uh, incredibly courageous woman, um, and an unwavering voice for human rights, for democracy, and for press freedom. Um, all three of those pillars, uh, she has been uh, really um, heroic. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about the woman. Um, and uh, and I would also note that uh, uh, all of the friends that I have lost uh, to Putin's murderous dictatorship, uh, she has also lost, along with many more. Um, and and so I totally understand her uh, her devotion and her commitment, which comes out in this article uh, as a warning about um, we're supposed to be fighting for democracy in Ukraine, and Ukraine is. Uh, less and less looking like a democracy. Um, there's censorship in the press. There's uh, there aren't elections. There's martial law. Um, the point about corruption: Ukraine's been plagued by corruption, uh, probably more so than any other of the former Soviet states, uh, and has struggled with it. Sometimes hasn't struggled with it because they've been governed by corrupt leaders. Uh, that's part of what the Maidan movement in 2014. Uh, was about to overthrow those corrupt leaders who were tied to Russia and part of Zelensky's uh, presidency, and, and I think there's been there's been evidence of and public acknowledgement of uh, enormous achievements even during the war in combating uh, corruption. Um, but on the points about democracy and press freedom, let's 
I really think that, unfortunately, in this case, Masha really, really misses the point. Um, Ukraine is occupied by a genocidal dictatorship that seeks to wipe it out as a state and to eliminate the nation, Ukrainian as such, from existence. It is an occupying power. Uh, there was a large contingent of people inside Ukraine supporting Russia's effort to take over Ukraine. For Zelensky to have done anything other than what he did would have meant Russia's swift victory in Ukraine. There would no longer be a Ukraine today. There wouldn't be Ukrainian language taught in schools in Russia's uh, seizure of Ukraine, and on and on. Uh, there certainly wouldn't be a free press in Ukraine because there isn't in Russia. Um, and so uh, to have elections would mean people congregating and aggregating for long periods of times, whether during campaigns or in elections. Russia explicitly targets places where civilians congregate, apartments, markets, schools. Uh, it would have been a complete uh, breach of public trust and confidence of everything that the president of Ukraine is supposed to do in trying uh, against all odds to protect the Ukrainian people to allow elections to go forward. Um, martial law is essential. Uh, when, when occupied during war and trying to fight back. Um, and uh, instead of looking at, and right, things don't look so much like democracy in Ukraine now. Of course not. Russia's occupying Ukraine and bombing and shelling random locations throughout the territory every single day. Uh, and um, Ukraine's only hope is uh, to to try to fight against it. And, um, and to, to keep the society in all aspects focused on that fight. Uh, so, no, I don't like it. And I agree with Masha that some of the things that Ukraine has done, um, you know, none of us would want to live in those conditions. But guess what? None of us would want to live in those conditions. And, and I failed to see any other option that Zelensky would have had. To the last point, or the one point you made, is Ukrainian society changed forever? Yeah, the answer to that is yes. Um, will democracy be possible after this conflict? Um, any suggestion that Zelensky is not committed to the principles of democracy and human rights and press freedom uh, requires evidence, and she offers zero evidence. Uh, Zelensky is, a, if nothing else, that man's whole life has been about uh, freedom of speech, uh, public critique of authority. Um, as an entertainer, that's who he was. Uh, as a president, that's what he was committed to in his candidacy. Uh, and uh, he deserves the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and so uh, I, I really was saddened by that column that she wrote. And, and I think it was ill-timed and I think it was off the mark. Uh, and yet, I still hold her in the highest possible regard. 
at the very end of the article, she does uh, offer a little, I think, glimmer. Um, one of the people that she had interviewed, she sort of wraps everything up with that. Um, Ukrainians are not surrendering, but as uh, Kubzin told me, I've given up my freedom so I can fight for my freedom. And this is true of most everyone I know. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're right. Elections have been suspended for for now. I mean, how in the middle of a conflict like that, that is taking virtually all of the country's attention and energy, yeah. how do you spend, how do you justify um, spending money um, on an election? And, you know, I'm, I have, like you, I have a lot of faith in, in Zelensky. I don't think, you know, I don't think he's a budding Viktor Orban. I don't think he's a Donald Trump type that sees oh, this conflict as his avenue to perpetual power. Um, I, I suspect. Well, I'll, Go ahead. Even more, Joan, let's assume the worst. If he is, there is no way the Ukrainian people are going to tolerate a Putin-like leader mm-hmm. uh, if they somehow emerge as an independent state after this war, because that is not what they are fighting for. They're fighting for, uh, they're fighting against Putinism. They're fighting against dictatorship. So the Ukrainian people will not allow it. Uh, and and every Ukrainian I've met, both those who um, are in exile and those who are still there, uh, who I've met when they've when they've been out of the country. Um, that there's just no shadow of a doubt. And so I think on that point, she also um, sort of misses that point as well. Um, I don't think there's any danger of that. We've been talking about a lot of the things that I've been reading. Um, is there any development or is there anything happening to do with Ukraine, either in Europe or in Ukraine or in the United States, that uh, we didn't touch on that you think my listeners uh, need to know about? Because I know you are really um, much more up on this topic than I am. Um, I think you might remember towards the end of 2023, it sounded like um, those F-16s, the first ones, were going to be delivered. Uh, And that has been delayed and for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Um, and that's really significant because really every day matters on that. Um, uh, and uh, I've not seen reports in the last couple of weeks suggesting that uh, that that's going to change before before late spring. Uh, but let's hope that it does. Um, the other thing that uh, that is um, there's been some reporting on, uh, but Ukraine has started up production of. Uh, drones, um, not drones like you know the Reapers that are like the size of airplanes, uh, but not drones that are like the ones you'd buy at Walmart. Uh, something in between. Uh, but they're developing drones that that can go hundreds of miles hmm. uh, and that can carry uh, quite a bit of weight. And what we have seen is uh, successful use of those drones against um, oil refineries and oil and gas depots um, across Russia in, in many, many cities. And they've been able to penetrate air defenses or hit places that are not very well defended um, and cause quite a bit of damage. Uh, and then uh, yesterday, the day before, uh, they took out 
another uh, Russian naval ship in the Black Sea. I forget the name of it. It began with an I. Uh, but of note, uh, and, and it was buried in, in the, uh, the articles that I read, uh, those were uh, missile carriers. Uh, so they were transport ships that were carrying uh, missiles for distribution, rockets and missiles for distribution uh, to Russian forces across the front. Uh, and indeed, that airplane that was shot down um, that appears to have been carrying POWs is also a plane that regularly carries uh, rockets and other munitions. Um, so this tells us that Ukraine's intelligence uh, is really good, uh, that their ingenuity and technology is advancing and they're able to produce these things. Uh, if you have not seen the video of them taking out that ship, I encourage it because uh, there's a camera in the front of the drone that shows it weaving in and out as the Russian ship is firing at it. Wow. It avoids the fire and hits the ship. And apparently there were three drones that hit the ship at the same time from three different angles. And that's what uh, destroyed it. Wow. And these are cheap, Joan. So if they can keep doing that, uh, they're trying to find ways to stay in the fight. So. Um, Let's hope they can stay in the fight long impressive. enough for us to get our act together. <clears throat> and Joel, thank you so much, as always, for spending a big part of your day. Um, it is always enlightening, and I thank you again for being here. And I want you to have a wonderful weekend. I want you to have a wonderful weekend, and thank you for <laughs> inviting me on again, Joe. And always, a, always a pleasure. Yeah, take care. Take care of yourself. Um, that is going to do it for me. Driving it home with the lovely Patty Vasquez is next. Again, I'm going to give you the same assignment this weekend that I give you most weekends. Find one thing to do, one person to talk to, something, a book to read, uh, an animal to pet. Find something that brings you joy this weekend. And um, make sure you give yourself a little bit of a break, okay? We've got a long slog through 2024. We're going to do it together, and we're going to take this country back. So rest up, my friends. Rest up. That's it for me. I will see you Monday. Have a great evening. Good night.